Christ is risen. risen Sorry, you guys didn't need a mic. I did. And I also just want to say, Emily, it is so good to see you after so long. Guys, Emily Morris and her family, and in the first service, Jody Bowersox was with us for the first time in well over a year. She was quick to let us all know it was 400 plus days. Who's counting? No, we're all counting everything in COVID, except calories. Not counting that, but we're counting everything else. Um, So I have two quick announcements before I jump into the message. One is uh, Pastor Jade and Christy are actually not here because they're preaching at New Life East today, which is a great privilege. It's Pastor Jade's first time, I believe, preaching at one of the other New Life congregations. So maybe in just a second, we'll pray for him as he's probably getting up right about the same time I am to preach. And then also, we are having a welcome dinner next Sunday night. Next Sunday night. So yes, put my email up there. Thank you. I told them in the first service, I said, go to the website and register. And I gave this elaborate pitch. And then someone came up to me after service and they were like, well, it's not on the website. It was on the website at one time, but I couldn't find it between services. So the welcome dinner is for people who many, many different kinds of quote unquote guests. So this would be, if you have come in the last three to six months and you feel like New Life Midtown uh, is your home church, but maybe you want to get plugged in, you need to know the next steps. What does this mean for me in this newfound church family? This is for you. Register by emailing me. If you're really new, like the last couple of weeks, And you're still discerning, is this the church that God is planting me in? I have a lot of questions. I want to hear more from the pastors, from the leadership. This is for you. Please register and come. And maybe this is your first week, and you're at a season where you're trying to find a church family. You have no idea. You don't even really know where to begin. All that you know about us is that we're a New Life Church, and you just experienced worship for the first time. We would love to have you at the welcome dinner. It basically is a time where we spend time hearing your story. We share a little bit of our story, and we talk about some of the core values of our community. So if that appeals to you or you sense that the Lord might be leading you in that direction, please email me and I will send you the link to register directly in the next two days. All right, can we do that? I see so many new faces every week that I can't believe last service I gave the pitch and then it wasn't there. It wasn't on the website. So we'll figure it out. Hopefully those people will flag us down or we'll get to flag them down before next week. So today I am preaching on lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. How exciting, right? How exciting. I did, Jeff remembered, I got this uh, three years ago. We did a series on the Lord's Prayer and I preached this. And I told them in the first service that this is one of those messages that you don't just kind of get up and, and wing from your theology background because there's so many things that need to be said in a precise way because It's a really tender and difficult subject for some people because we've all been sinned against and we all have seasons in our lives where we've maybe come out of some really serious sin and or evil has been pressed up against us in ways that have wounded us. And so I was preparing this message and then I got to Friday and I was like, I just, this is all right but it's not what I want to say. So I actually went back to my message from a few years ago 
And I made that my starting point. And this is not the same message, but it's really close. I took a lot of the good things that I said, and I, I'm choosing to leave out some of the more immature things that I said. So <laughs> you're welcome for that. And before, before we get too far into this, I said I wanted to pray for Pastor Jade. So let's do that. Let's pray for the other New Life congregations. Yeah. I, f- I feel so scattered right now, but I don't want to forget that. Lord, we bless Pastor Jade and Christy as they are with the Arnts and New Life East. And God, we ask that you would equip him and that through his mouth would come living water, refreshing. God, let him preach the gospel in a way that is both convicting and hopeful, where people are challenged to go deeper and higher and be more righteous and more active in the kingdom, but also drawn closer to Jesus and pushed more in reliance on Jesus. So I pray for the Duncans and I pray for all of the other congregations right now and all of the other churches, Lord, that are so, there's so many that are so close to us right now. We bless them and we ask that the proclamation of the word would be anointed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I feel a little better, guys. It's good. So deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. You know, this is the first part of the prayer that admittedly recognizes that there is opposition to the kingdom coming and his will being done. I mean, think about it. If Jesus prayed this prayer, and if Christians have been praying the Lord's Prayer for over 2,000 years, and we're still praying for the kingdom to come, why is that? Well, maybe that's because there is real opposition to the kingdom of God coming in our midst. And so we acknowledge that there is temptation that comes from evil, or as some translations will say, the evil one, and we pray to be delivered. Praying this prayer, this phrase in the prayer, implies a crisis that we cannot get ourselves out of. We're admitting, Lord, we're in a mess that we can do very little about. And if we're to be any good, if we are to be uh, servants in the kingdom, We need you to deliver us from the evil that is crouching at our door, as it says in Genesis. It also acknowledges that both in our sin and in our salvation, that we are interdependent. Deliver us. This is not just deliver me from the bad things that I have done or keep me from the bad things that people want to do to me because we recognize that both in the body of Christ and just in the human race, that all of our actions have interdependent repercussions, that there is almost nothing that we can do that does not somehow affect the life of another person. So both in our sin and in our salvation, we are interdependent. We are bound up. God, save us together. Deliver us together. Don't just deliver me, as Paul says. I don't want to be delivered if it means that I won't be with them. Deliver us together, but also bring us salvation together. All of it is interdependent, that there is none of this that is just me or just you. And then lastly, we are confessing and acknowledging that evil is real and that there is opposition to the kingdom of God that is actively seeking to work against you and I every day. So what is evil? Before we get into the quote-unquote preaching, just going to set this up with a little bit of teaching here. Evil is the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world 
and God's image-bearing creatures. That's you and me and every human being walking the face of the earth. Evil is the force which opposes and seeks to deface. So to simplify, evil is all that opposes God and his work. Evil is all that opposes God and his work. And before we get too far, what is, what is evil not? And I felt compelled to say some of these things because evil is a topic that I think there are two polar directions that we tend to go in the church. One is putting our head in the sand and ignoring it. Um, without getting too political or into uh, things that might be divisive amongst us, there are ways of living in this world as if it all depends on us and what we do and does not acknowledge at all that there is an active opposition to us. And then the other end of the spectrum is where basically we're looking for devils around every corner. We're trying to attribute everything to the enemy and we are, we are not nearly as concerned about living faithfully as we are living aggressively against the enemy. And I think that the place of faithfulness is the place in between. So I want to address some of these. Number one, evil is not something to be understood. It cannot be fought intellectually. Evil cannot be rationalized away. We can act like we're rationalizing it away. We can ignore it. But that doesn't make evil any less present. Our primary task, N.T. Wright says, I love this, is not to provide answers but to bring signs of God's new world, even in the midst of the present evil age. That your and my job is to not provide answers to the problem of evil, but it is, but it is, but it, 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 it is, to bring signs of God's work in the midst of evil, in the midst of a broken world. Now there are, uh, ways of speaking about evil. Some are better than others, but most of us are not philosophers and theologians, and our job is to point to the work of God, the activity of God that is present among us. Because you have the problem of evil, whether you believe in God or not. So those that run from Christianity and run from believing in God because of the problem of evil, it doesn't solve their problem. It just takes the hope away. <laughs> That's all that that does. So the second problem, or the second what evil is not, is it is not a problem to be solved. Evil cannot be solved practically or pragmatically. Evil cannot be done away with if we just do enough good works. Now, Dr. Green preached a couple of weeks ago on the kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the crux of his message is that the spirit presses the people of God into responsibility. He does, the Spirit does not absolve us from responsibility. In other words, what we do matters. That our actions, as we are living faithfully into the kingdom of God and in coherence with the will of God, that God is doing what we are doing. And so we have to take that seriously. But no amount of human effort can rid the world of evil. That's the other side of that paradox, that only God can defeat, which he already has, and destroy, which he will in the future, the presence of evil among us. And the great hope is that God is not done working, right? This is what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, as it is said, right? 
where the author of the book of Hebrews walks through so many of the Old Testament characters and refers to what they did in faith. They did trust in God according to what they could not see. And at the end, it is declared that God is not done working, that they are incomplete without us. In other words, the story that God is telling, the story that is unfolding in the earth is still happening, which is why we pray this prayer. Every week, we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. We continue to pray for sustenance. We continue to pray for forgiveness. We continue to pray for deliverance. Why? Because God is still working, as we just sang. Even when we don't see it, God is still working. Number three, evil is not a person or a group of people. Evil cannot be defeated through violence. Evil cannot be defeated through violence. Think about it. One of the greatest temptations of our time is that news sources, political sources, even in the church, we want to name enemies. And the lie is that if we name the enemy, we can identify them, we can either destroy them or ostracize them, and then we will be safe. The problem is multifaceted. One, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Two, every time in human history an enemy was destroyed, guess what happened? Can you believe it? Another one popped up. Can you believe it? That after the Egyptians, there were the Assyrians. After the Assyrians, there were the Babylonians. After Babylonians, there were the Romans. And it goes on and on and on. And there are people in other countries, believe this or not, that think we're their enemy. I know that that sounds like heresy. But the point is, evil is not a person or a group of people. Spiritual warfare, according to Ephesians chapter 6 and pretty much all of Paul's letters, is learning to identify that evil is a power and a source that works in and through people and principalities and powers, but is not the people themselves. And the minute that we buy into the lie that people or people groups are inherently themselves evil, we've already begun to partner with the work of evil itself. I'm about to, Mariah. (laughs) The line between good and evil is never simply between us and them. The line between good and evil runs through each human heart. And that's hard to wrestle with as those who are believers, who have been redeemed. But I want you to think about some Bible stories here. So go back with me. We're not going to turn there to the story of Noah and the ark. So what happens in that story? So God is utterly disgusted with just how in a few generations, how prevalent evil has become in the world. And so God in the story is going to eradicate the world of evil and he finds a righteous man and a righteous family. And he preserves them through a flood and he's going to destroy the rest of the human race through a flood and he preserves Noah. And then what happens as soon as Noah gets off the ark. Not but three or four verses later, you know what happened? Noah built a vineyard, had got drunk off of the grapes of the vineyard, had engaged in sexually exploitative acts with family members, and then was betrayed and uncovered by his sons. 
Do you think that that kind of ridding the evil between us and them worked? No, it didn't. Why? Because the line that runs between good and evil is in every human heart, even Noah's. So Noah gets off the ark, and there is still evil present deep within Noah's own heart. Think about the story uh, of Peter and Jesus, Matthew 16, one of my favorite stories. I think it is almost inexhaustible in the revelation that can come from this story where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter pipes up in true Peter fashion, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A plus Peter, you win. The very next story is Jesus beginning to teach his disciples about what is going to happen to him. And Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. Because even within Peter, the man who could receive the most prized revelation that there is, the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, still thinks he knows what it means, and he rebukes Jesus. We are more capable of getting it wrong than we think we are. Evil, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart, not between us and them. And so we pray for deliverance. How are we to live in the meantime? I said this in the first service and I failed to say it here, so I'll say it now. This prayer, when we pray for deliverance, there's three layers. The first layer is ultimate deliverance. Come, Jesus, come. Return. Set all things right. In the Old Testament, this was the how long, O Lord, before you come deliver your people and send us the Messiah. And then the prayer in the New Testament is come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are praying for the end. We are praying for the eschaton to come. So that's one layer. The next layer is we are praying to be delivered from the evil that is out there that seeks to come against us. We're saying preserve us, heal us, keep us from sickness, keep us from the evil of betrayal and ego and all of the things that want to come against us and destroy our lives. But the third way that we pray this prayer, the third layer to this prayer, is that we are asking that the Lord would deliver us from the evil that is within us that seeks to be unleashed on the people around us. Because that's always what the evil one wants. He wants to deceive us into partnering with his work, thinking that it is the work of the kingdom. And that is when we are most in danger. When we are convinced that we are working with God to God's ends, but we are doing it the enemy's ways. So in just a minute, we're going to talk about the temptations of Jesus. But I want to read a couple of verses before. Verses that you have all likely heard and verses that you are familiar with. But I want to put put these together in a way that I am arguing that the way that we are saved from and delivered from the evil that is within us is through discernment, that it is through coming to see rightly and learning to resist faithfully. Learn to see rightly so that we are not blinded and deceived and then learn to resist faithfully in ways that are faithful and congruent with the character of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. So Paul's talking about false teachers in the church. 
And he's warning them in Corinthians, do not be deceived. I know that they look like me and they sound like me, but their message and their method are not the same. They are not the message and the method of Jesus Christ. And how often do we get deceived because we just think that evil is going to appear as evil? Guys, we know that that's not way. I mean, if you've read your Bible for 30 minutes, you know that, that the enemy and that evil thrive on deception. That there is, of course, overt demonic oppression. That there are things that every one of us would look at and go, yeah, that's evil. To kill someone is evil. There are evil things that are obvious to us, but the things that are the most dangerous to us are the things that seem as if they are light because they seem that they are in congruence with what God wants. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Where am I at here? Who knows? Who cares? We are enticed because both our appetites and our judgments are triggered by what we see. I mean, think about that. The way that we see triggers our appetites. I mean, this is, this is the Garden of Eden story, that Eve's appetite is triggered. And as we're going to look in just a moment, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, his appetite was being tempted to turn the stones into bread because Satan is an opportunist, and he's hungry. So his appetite was triggered. But also our judgments are triggered by what we see. This is the famous passage uh, in Samuel where they're looking for the next king of Israel, right? And he says, don't look on the outer appearance because if you do, you will judge him away quickly. But God looks at the heart. We are notorious for making judgments based off of what we see. This is, think about the story of Abram and Lot when they're moving into the new land, and Abram gives Lot the first choice, and it says that Lot looks out, and he sees that, it, that, the water, or that there is water, that the land is fertile. So he chooses that. But what ends up happening? He doesn't realize it, but he's chosen land right in the midst of Sodom because we're deceived by what we see because we make judgments quickly. And so this next verse Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? Now, we've no doubt heard this verse maybe hundreds of times. But have you ever thought how you would respond to the rhetorical question Jesus is asking? How is it? It's because we have become so familiar with the log that is in our own eye that it colors and taints everything that we see that we don't even realize it's there because everyone and everything that we see is impeded by this thing so we no longer even notice it that our vision is much the same way in reality of course there's not literal planks in any of your eyes if so go to an urgent care promptly But the way that we see, the way that we make judgments have been so conditioned by the, quote-unquote, the planks that get lodged in our eyes. So we don't even realize that they are there. We are less aware of how we see than we are of what we're seeing. We are less aware of the biases and the proclivities to the judgments that we make 
than we are of what we're seeing. So we assume that what we're seeing is reality. And over and over and over again, Jesus in the Gospels is continually turning these things over. Jesus is constantly overlooked. He's almost never seen for who he is. Even after his death, they're still not seeing it. Why is that? Because they had been so conditioned. The plank in their eye was that they thought the Messiah was going to be someone he was never going to be. We need to learn to see differently in order to discern the work of God from the work of the enemy. So how do we learn to discern well and to resist evil faithfully? I would submit to you that the only way is to know the character of God as revealed in Jesus. That the only way to rightly discern an angel of darkness masquerading as an angel of light from an angel of light Christ himself is to know the character of Christ so well that we can discern the disguise, the deceit of the enemy. You know, there is this song, and I said this in the first service. I want to tell you, I'm going to critique the song because I said the song and everyone was like, woo! And then I was like, well, I'm going to flip it on its head for a minute. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. It's otherwise than what I'm going to critique, a wonderful song. But there is this line, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I want to propose to you that I think that is exactly inversely wrong. That as we come to see the light of his glory and grace, that actually it sheds light on the world. And we begin to see people and the world and the created order as it was meant to be. That being with Jesus and looking at Jesus is not a way to be absolved from responsibility, to push the world away and to write people off and to make judgments quickly. No, the light of his glory and grace illuminates everything else so that we can learn to see rightly and take responsibility for things in a faithful way. So how do we learn to discern, to know the character of God as revealed in Jesus? So we're going to look at the temptation story Let's look together in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read the first 11 verses, and then I'm going to come and expound upon it. A couple of things I want you to notice. One, think about the story of the garden and the way that Eve was enticed as we read this. Take notice of any time that it refers to enticing or showing or revealing Anything that leads to looking the way that we see or the way that in this story, Satan is appealing to Jesus's sight. Okay, let's read together. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was famished. uh, You think the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he, God the Father, will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. 
verse 7. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him away to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. There is so much to unpack here. Uh, Just the other day, Friday or Saturday, I read an extensive research paper that was just brilliant and making all kinds of connections to things in Israel's history. Well, we're not going to go there. You can never do that in a sermon. But a few things that I think are very important for us understanding what is happening, because I believe that the way that Jesus was tempted, that the root of the temptations is the same for us. So what is happening? Satan is asking Jesus, if you really are, or more posing a statement. But I don't think Jesus was actually concerned or was wary of forgetting that he was actually the son of God. So Satan was calling into question, are you really the son of God? But I think there's something much deeper going on. Not are you the son of God, but what kind of son are you? What does your relation to the father mean for you? and for those that you are called to serve. Turn the stones to bread, temptation number one. It is the temptation to fulfill his own needs, to move from a place of utter dependence to a place of self-assertion, to making things happen for himself. The second temptation, throw yourself down from the temple. Essentially, force God, force God's hand to save you. This is the move from trust to a move of coercion and manipulation. You have this relation to the Father. If you do this, he has to respond. Number three, worship me, Satan. Take what is yours apart from your Father. The move from faithful allegiance to the Father to betrayal. All of these posed a shortcut They posed a shortcut based on the kind of son that Jesus was called to be. Is Jesus called to be the kind of son that uses his power and his position as a privilege to serve himself and make his earthly existence easier? Or is his power and his position to serve the world and open up new possibilities for us? That is the temptation. The temptation is to use God's word against him, to use the power, the access that we have been given in ways that benefit us and say, screw the world. This is the temptation to do the things that we know God ultimately wants to do, but to do them in our time, to do them our way, devoid of God himself. These are the areas where we are most tempted because we are slow to recognize we're being tempted at all. He comes at him naming his identity. He knows this is the son of God, that you have power and access. And then he uses scripture. I mean, think about that. He's not just coming and saying, do bad things. He's coming as an angel of darkness, masquerading as an angel of light. And 
I am suggesting that this is exactly the way that it happens for you and for me. The temptation for Jesus is to use his power in self-serving ways rather than self-giving ways. To apply his power in ways that are unfaithful to who he is and the mission that he is called to. To get God to do what he is capable of doing, but is not in his character or will or timing to do. The enemy entices us by appealing to our ego, our aversion to pain and difficulty, and maybe the biggest one, our impatience. He appeals to our ego, our aversion to pain and difficulty, and our impatience. Guys, it is not you. I have two toddlers. I am confronted every moment of the day with my impatience. Every moment you need this again. Bonnie and I were joking the other day on Friday, our Sabbath day. Uh, <clears throat> it seems I am most keenly aware of my sin on my Sabbath day. I got to figure that out. But Bonnie was like, Eloise, I am going to start counting how many times I hear the word mommy today. I mean, we're, it was just like, it was incessant. It was ridiculous. And you know what? That's what toddlers are supposed to do. We are impatient and we are impatient with the work of God. And one of the temptations is to take God's work into our own hands. And when we do that, we inevitably divorce it from God and his ways. And then we are no longer doing the work of God at all. Faithful resistance to Jesus looks like following the way of Jesus. Not just doing things that Jesus did, but following the way, the character, the nature of the way that Jesus did them. And that is seen most clearly on the cross. There is this verse ever, we're going to go to 1 Peter 2 in just a moment. But there's a verse, guys, I'm a pastor's kid. I've been raised in the church my whole life. And just about two years ago, I read this verse, and I, I promise it wasn't there before that. <laughs> I, I had never seen, I must, my, my parents must have slipped me a new Bible because I had never seen this verse in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read 21 to 23 together. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I'm not going to lie. I don't like that. I like the version of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross so I wouldn't have to. And there is some truth in that. If by saying that, what we mean is that Jesus did something you and I could never do, then we're absolutely right. If any one of us died on a cross in exactly the same way that Jesus did, it wouldn't have done what Jesus did. But Jesus dying on the cross the way he did made it possible so that in the face of evil and in the face of darkness, we could follow faithfully. So it's not one or the other. I much prefer the version where Jesus did it all, which of course he did. But for us to be faithful in this life, we follow his way. And what is that way? When he was abused, he did not retaliate. When words of lies were spoken against him, 
he did not defend himself. Because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And I want to say this, I want to make a caveat here, that, that I am not suggesting that if you are in an abusive relationship, that you should just allow it to keep happening because Jesus didn't defend himself in that way. No, get out. But the way we respond to the violence done to us reveals whether the love of the Father is in us or not. That faithful resistance doesn't look like retaliation. Faithful resistance to evil always wants what's best for those that we deem to be against us as our enemies. And until we come to that place, there is still work to be done in our hearts and in our lives. That Jesus was able to breathe out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, because he had come to love them more than he loved his own life. And that is what we are called to. That is what faithful resistance to evil looks like. That's at the root of all of this. Do we trust the one who judges justly? Do we trust that God really will make all things right? Do we trust that he has truly forgiven us? Do we trust that he will not let evil stand? And do we trust that his ways are enough to really make a difference? Don't be too quick to answer those questions. Part of the Christian journey of learning to follow Jesus is getting to the place where we can willingly say, I trust you with them. I trust you with the situation. I trust you with the way that I was wounded, the way that I was sinned against. Because every one of us have been sinned against before we ever sinned. Think about that. Before we ever sinned, we were sinned against. I don't think we're capable of sinning as little babies and toddlers, but certainly as parents, we wound our kids, mostly inadvertently, of course, but that happens. And part of living in this life is learning to absorb evil in ways that are faithful to the life of Jesus and breathe out forgiveness, not vengeance and retribution. And that is one of the most difficult things about this life. So how do we oppose evil through the way of the cross? The cross. We entrust our lives to God and we wait for God to finish acting. And we follow the way of Jesus. We don't fight evil with evil, but what do we do? We forgive. We don't counteract evil with evil. We counteract evil with good. We live in love. We pray for our enemies. We forgive those who wrong us. We show mercy to those who deserve punishment. And we stand up for the oppressed and we wait for God to act. To be delivered from evil does not mean that we will be rescued from all of the evil that happens in the world around us. It means that we are able to see it, to recognize it, and to faithfully resist it until the end when we will be fully delivered and he will come and right every wrong. He won't just do away with evil. He will wipe every tear from every eye 
in all that was lost in evil's wake, he will make right. And that is the Christian hope, that when evil exhausts itself, it looks like Jesus being crucified. But we serve a God who raises the dead. We serve the God who brings resurrection from rubble, from death, from where we look and we see no life. We see no hope. We see no possibility. God brings life. And we must be ones who are willing to wait patiently and entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Aaron, would you come? Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord. If you would, let us stand together. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And then we will come, we will receive the elements, come out the left side of your rows, and then go back to your seats in the right side, and we will partake together. But first, let's pray the prayer of our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Come to the table of the Lord and receive of these elements. We will partake together. This is a sign 
of Christ's body and his blood, the kingdom of God, come into our midst. Our spiritual nourishment, our sustenance to live the life that we have been called to live. And when we come to this table, we also are anticipating the day when Jesus is present to us face to face and we will see him like he is. Oh, what a glorious day. But until that day, the light of his glory and grace illuminates the world around us. It's not an excuse to turn away from it. So with the bread in your hand, the body of Christ broken for you, crack it, and then let us take and receive together, church. after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the remission of sins, the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood of Christ shed for you and for me. Church, let us take and receive together. Amen. Let us sing the doxology and then I'll pray a benediction and we'll be dismissed. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father. I pray that the light of his face would shine upon you, that you would have discernment and be able to faithfully resist the temptations of the enemy. Go as the faithful presence of Jesus Christ to every place that you and that I inhabit this week. And go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.